I'm Kim, and we are two paranormal investigators who delved into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Gotta have that debunking. You know, it wouldn't be a ghoulish tendencies episode if we did not debunk. Actually, speaking of debunking, uh, there has been a little bit of an update on a previous episode of ours. There has. There has. Yeah, pretty exciting update, actually. So there has been a rather interesting development in our Dyatlov Pass. Oh, yes. If you Mm -hmm. recall, we could not be on the same page (laughs) on that episode. We both thought different things, but that's fine. And I think that makes it like fun. You know, we can discuss different potential reasons why the situation happened. And if you haven't listened to the Dyatlov Pass episode, pause. Go back, listen to it, and then listen to what we have to say, because it's going to make no sense if you just hear us talking out of context. It's an awesome episode. Gabby rocked her research in that. Uh, So if you haven't listened to it, you should. Uh, It's also just a really interesting case about uh, some hikers who mysteriously died in the mountains. Mm Mm-hmm. And when their bodies were found, there's been, I mean, everything from weird, like, Russian experiments to alien mm-hmm. invasion. There's oh, yeah. all these, yeah, all these crazy theories, right? Mm-hmm. So there has been uh, a new look at this case, essentially. And and there's a number of people who have been taking a look at it. Uh, one of them being uh, lead author, I'm going to butcher this name, <laughs> Johan Gaum. Head of the Snow and Avalanche Simulation Laboratory. Um, And they ran these tests, and he actually is quoted as saying, um, we show the plausibility of the avalanche hypothesis. So this new research they're doing is showing that it is actually possible. There was a small avalanche that happened and part of the reason the bodies were so beat up because a few of them were is that they were using their skis as beds so when the force of the snow hitting them against the rigid skis is why some of uh the the student students students oh. some of them were students some yeah were students why the young people young people they were those um, yes had so many broken bones and that some of the other you know like the missing organs and all that can be attributed to animals so i still question it because how did they have time to take off their shoes and socks and all that business because they fully like a lot of the people were not fully clothed cuz they were sleeping but then some of them were fully clothed because they were sleeping. Okay. Well, some pe- I know, some people sleep nude. Some people sleep in, in like full snow? snowsuit. I mean, well, uh, it's very possible that some of them were cold and kept on like shoes. And I'm they're sleeping on their skis. I question that. That seems weird. But whatever. Um. But yeah, I mean, like I sleep really warm, and so I I don't I wear like a tank top. Uh. But I know people who sleep really cold, and they wear sweaters, which I can't. I'm wearing a sweater to sleep. Sweatshirt, sweaters. Oh my God. How must, how hot must you get? So, so this is why you're the yin to my yang because, yeah. uh, 
I sleep cold. I'm the person with the constant cold feet and parents wants to murder me every night I get into bed. Uh, I, I'm like, if it's, it, I, I, I open my window in the winter time because it's too hot when I'm trying to sleep. So basically if Kim was at Dyatlov Pass, she'd be one of the naked people. <laughs> I don't sleep, I don't sleep naked. I'm totally joking. <laughs> that's, that's, no, but like the I. The tank top wearer. Yeah, but group. like people, people sleep differently. And when that's they're true. camping too, people sleep differently and have different comfort levels too. True. Uh, you also start to remove clothing when hypothermia sets in. One of the things that that's is. That's true often happens is you you think you're warm so you start removing your clothes so i mean i don't debunk it all day truly i've always stood by the avalanche i've always thought that that seemed uh plausible plausible is a good word um so uh, yeah, I I find this really really interesting. You can there's there's lots of articles out there. We can maybe post some links on our Facebook so that you can take a look for yourself. But I recommend reading up. Uh, it's really interesting. And I think one of, one of the things that I thought was really interesting having to do with that article was that I think Disney uh, simulations help them figure <gasps> out the size of the avalanche yeah. that would cause something like that. And I just not love that Disney just, got involved. Not just Disney. They specifically went to the people who made Frozen. <laughs> That's even better. Because of all the work that they'd done. Yeah. So. Okay. But now I just really want to see a Photoshop picture of Olaf with like human remains from... <laughs> Do you love pass? Do you want to build a snowman <laughs> with a corpse or two? <laughs> There's like actual dead arms sticking out of the snowman. <laughs> Our friends at home who are good at Photoshop challenge extended. It's called the Olaf challenge. It's called the Olaf challenge. Hashtag Olaf challenge. Hashtag let's make this trend. Please. All right. That's your challenge out there, listeners. Please do it. Boom. So I also want to thank all of our patrons at Patreon. I know we usually talk about it toward the end of the episode, but I didn't want to get into our topic before talking about how grateful we are to everyone who financially supports us, emotionally supports us, all of the levels of support we appreciate. And uh, we look forward to providing you with more content moving forward. So thanks, y'all. If you haven't become a patron yet, check us out at patreon.com slash ghoulish tendencies. And uh, there's some fun things on there. We have, we're going to have forever bloopers because we always have bloopers and they get better and better every single episode. So if you like a good giggle, join, join us. Join us. Bloopers. (laughs) But uh, you know, speaking of funny things, today is not really an episode of funny things. <laughs> I'm going to try uh, to rein in my uh, snark a little bit. <laughs> I mean, there are moments that we can be snarky and I'll give you your moment. But we generally, Kim and I, when we talk about topics that we like to do, I generally gravitate toward haunted topics, as, as you have, I'm sure, seen in what? our history of all of our episodes. What? And Kim loves her true crime. So 
usually it's very much Kim handles the true crime. She does have some haunted ones, but I generally am more on the haunted side. I have a couple true crime, but I wanted to add more true crime to the lineup. Mm-hmm. And for this episode, I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't like gory things, Ooh, yeah. if you don't like homicide, <laughs> Why are you listening to our podcast? Who are you? Who Um, are you? But for real, for real. (laughs) Trigger warning on violence, graphic details, and there are some mentions of rape and domestic abuse, which are not funny things. They are very serious, messed up things. Um, And unfortunately, that is part of our topic today. So this topic is about Catherine Mary Knight. For those of you who don't know her, in March of 2000, Catherine Knight, who was a slaughterhouse worker, which I think oh, is... Oh, seriously? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. She Whoa. did it for many years, and we'll oh, get into that. That's... Mm, okay. It's, it's, I mean, it's on brand, so... It adds an extra twist to the case? Oh, there's many twists that we're going to add. But she worked at a slaughterhouse for many years, and she ended up stabbing her partner... 37 times with a butcher knife. Uh, She then chopped him up, cooked him, and then prepared him as a meal uh, to serve to his children. And it turns out she ate some of him too and left some for the dog. So, I mean, let's just say this. That's just a Hannibal Lecter of her. This is 2000. So Hannibal's story is his, his story has been told at this point. So maybe she got inspiration from him. I don't know. But, you know, she did make a plate that looked like a Thanksgiving dinner. So it just ended up not being turkey. So for those of you who don't know who Robert Keppel is, does that name ring a bell to you? Yes. So he uh, is a very well-respected and well-known criminal profiler. Hold on. I have like three of his books over here. <laughs> Kim is very well aware of who he is. They're best friends. They hang out. Um, But anyway, he even said, so like knowing that Couples said these things just gives you some perspective. He said, I don't think I've ever heard of a case before that does the things that this woman did. Keppel actually started out as a homicide detective and worked on more than 2,000 murder cases in the U.S., and he actually was one of the people who helped catch Bundy, for those of you guys that don't know. So for him to say something like that is kind of a big deal. He also said, this is so far up the continuum of psychopathological behavior. This person is full blown. Mm. You have gone through the elements of voyeurism. You've gone through the elements of enjoying torture before death. You have gone through the elements of enjoying torture after death. You have got the consumption, the cannibalism, you know, total necrophiliac behaviors. You know, no big deal. No big deal, Keppel. NBD. (laughs) NBD. So there's your trigger warning from Keppel himself. Uh, of this story. So even before this specific grisly killing, the life of Catherine Knight unfortunately was marked by violence and sexual abuse, and it only really hinted to the bloodshed that she eventually would encounter. So 
let's give a little bit of a background on her and then we'll talk about the actual murder and how it happened and the trial. Sound good? Sounds good. Cool. So she ended up becoming a mother of four and a grandmother of three. But before that, she had a pretty routine life. She could have easily slipped into rural anonymity. And February 29th, 2000 marked a day that was not so great. And that's when she did commit that murder. So her family lineage is actually traced back to Aberdeen in New South Wales in Australia. Oh, not not Aberdeen, Washington. That's not Aberdeen, Washington. Went. Although I would not be surprised. I'll just say that. Is, is she friends with her with Billy G? Billy G. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe they are friends. They both did not live at the same time. <laughs> so what? there's that. Now. This is an Australian story, so I'm actually excited that we can, like, venture into a different place and talk and about culture Shout elsewhere. out to our Australian listeners, because we do have yes, them. Yes, we do. I actually talked to Lola. Lola, shout out to Lola. <gasps> and I shout talked out to, to her. Yeah, and B. But I did talk to Lola about Catherine Knight, and when I told her we were doing it, she got very excited. So I would like to dedicate this episode to my dear friend Lola Buttons, who is a... <laughs> patron of ours as well so who knows maybe in the future as a patron you might have an episode dedicated to you so anywho so Catherine knight was born on october 24th 1955 in tenterfield australia tenterfield tenterfield she was the product of a scandalous affair between her mother barbara rugen raugen rugen and her father, Ken Knight. I can say his name. It was um, a, oh, so they it, it was an affair. Like the scandalous affair was just that it was an affair. It was just an affair, yeah. Oh, okay. I, we just like to make it sound more dramatic <laughs> was, than it is. I was waiting for like, were they were they siblings? Were they well Barbara was not only already a mother of four boys with another dude. Oh, damn. But she actually met Ken Knight through her husband. So it was a little bit scandalous. That's some shady. That's a little shady. That's just a little bit shady. Yeah. And, you know, apparently because, you know, towns are small, gossip is a big thing. Mm-hmm. When their secret rendezvous came to light, their small conservative town didn't like it very much. <laughs> Makes sense. Especially in a small town. I can see that. Yeah. They ended up getting married, though. So okay. that's good. Yeah. However, it didn't make the childhood of uh, Catherine Knight a great place. I'll just say that. Her childhood was just as chaotic as her parents' relationship. Mm. Her dad, Ken Knight, was a violent alcoholic. And this is really unfortunate. And I hate to say this, and I'm not joking at all when I say this. He raped her mother multiple (gasps) times a day. Um, And so... Catherine grew up around that, and she oh, saw that type of violence. That's that's so traumatic on a child. It's awful. Yeah. And, mm. you know, to add to it, Catherine also claimed that she was sexually assaulted by several family members up until uh, the age of 11. Oh. Unfortunately, it's very sad. But that'll damage a kid. Like, that's really, yeah. really damaging, right? Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that Catherine... Did not do well in school. (laughs) She did not have friends. She Uh, became the bully. She was the school bully. And she picked on smaller children frequently. And Mm. apparently she was so busy bullying kids that she never learned how to read or write. 
She was not the brightest crayon in the box. And she ended up dropping out of school at 15 to work at a clothing factory. So in the meantime, Catherine's father worked in meatpacking. Oh, dear. So it started before her. Oh, dear. Uh, And (laughs) when Catherine was 16, he helped her get a job working at the Aberdeen Meatworks as a slicer and packer specializing in disemboweling animals. Nice. And she worked alongside many women. Apparently that was a big thing for women to do. But this also makes you very desensitized to blood, to gore. Now you know how to cut up an animal. Um, I mean, clearly the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So I'm my spidey senses are telling me that she's going to get violent, right? So like... That's just me. Or the research I just did that I'm or about maybe, to tell you maybe about. maybe <laughs> went down a rabbit hole of research. Yeah, that too. <laughs> That'll do it. Uh, so she actually ended up working there for years, like 20 years. And loved the tough work, was very passionate about it. But hey, man, if you love it, do, do what you love, right? Yeah. But she was uh, laid off in 1985 after she had a pretty bad back injury. And apparently she loved this job so much that she hung her first ever set of butcher knives over her bed just in case she ever needed them. Wait, um, I need to pause you. Am I to understand that it's not normal to hang a set of butcher (laughs) knives above your bed? Asking for a friend. Um, You know... I grew up in Earthquake County, so I think hanging a knife above my bed is suicide. So I personally no, 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 might no. never do you that. You hang but... it to the other. You, it's a big bed. You can't cross. You can't be on the whole thing, girl. I love how detail oriented you are, Kim. I, I for a friend, my friend, friend, mm, my friend. Um, Qu- that's air what quotes. I, that's what I'm told. Air quotes. <laughs> So, uh, but, you know, it didn't stop her from having a good time. She still went to bingo nights. She took a sewing class. She even made her own clothes. And she loved to knit. Get it, girl. Be creative. (laughs) Now, eventually she becomes a mother. And I'll tell you about her relationships in a bit. And in that time, she helped out friends and neighbors. Uh, She was that person that would help babysit and take people to school and do all the mom things. Now, some people didn't really like her, though, and she gained the name the Red Hen or the Speckled Hen, um, I'm sure due to freckles and red hair because she did have Um, red hair. I was like, is that an Australian insult? Is that like calling someone ginger? I think so. I think it was meant to be one of those like joking insults that you say to someone where it's supposed to be like kind of funny, but it's also kind of like a jab. Like it's not Mm. really a compliment by any means but people will like giggle when they say it to your face kind of thing it's a bumblebee nickname yeah funny but it stings exactly yeah it's definitely (laughs) one of those and at at one point her partner even called her that nickname which i'm sure didn't feel great um she was considered a strong personality amen i'm one myself uh (laughs) but she was super high strung, very jealous, and had volatile behavior. Mm. She had a really bad temper that constantly threatened violence, and she had quite a mouth on her. I mean... Mm. Eh. Yeah. <clears throat> but, 
I feel like I feel like if, if these are all the signs that something's bad's going to happen, um, watch out for us, guys. You and I might be in trouble. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I don't have any knives hanging over my bed, so <laughs> just kidding. I, I'll talk to my friend. Just kidding. You do have knives hanging over your bed. I don't. I think um, <laughs> Terrence might be upset at me if I start to decorate in a more creative, pointy way, if you know what I'm saying. This is why I live by myself. <laughs> I can put knives wherever I want. You do you, boo-boo. And I do. And you do. This might be why I'm single. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. Catherine Knight still did this, and she had oh. multiple boyfriends. So it's you true. still have a chance, although she had some really toxic relationships. So, you know, with this bad temper that she had, some people would just kind of like label her as this crazy, angry person and actually treated her like a bad luck charm, which I think is just stupid, but also the mentality of a small town. Like I get it, but also that's just really dumb. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And people would literally cross the street to avoid her. Like when she was walking down the street, which also this like, to me, this is something you expect from a story that took place a hundred years ago. Right. This is like very recent. This is like 25 years ago that yeah, this, this kind bonkers. of stuff, 30 years ago, this stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. Again, though, Australia, we don't know how things go in Australia. We're not there. Um, Lola, let me know. <laughs> Update me. Um, but most of these people that were like avoiding her were women. So it was very gossipy. Mm. Apparently men didn't seem to mind her very much because she didn't have a hard time getting them. Uh, she was always in a relationship and seemed to kind of jump from relationship to relationship. Except these were very toxic relationships. So right. enter David Kellett. She, at age 18... 1974, got married to David Stanford Kellett, who was a massive alcoholic, just like her dad. Mm. Apparently, this marriage was very casual. They got married in the court, and she didn't tell her parents, and they got pissed. But um, I mean, if I had her parents, I might not tell them either. I was just going to say, no wonder she didn't want to tell her parents. Her mom (laughs) warned him about her. And that she had a really bad temper, saying that Knight had, quote, a screw loose somewhere. Her mom said this about her to the guy that she was going to marry. Okay, that's 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 a little hurtful. That's that's a conversation I would be having with my therapist. Therapy is helpful. Uh (laughs) Highly recommended. (laughs) She could have probably done wonders if she was in therapy. But clearly that was not a thing that she was, uh, you know, entertaining. But on their wedding night, you know, they got, they had to consummate their marriage. Apparently they did it. They're calling it these days. Apparently. (laughs) This is in 1974. So they had to consummate their marriage. So during the sexual revolution? Well, what's funny about that is that they, they did it three times, which like you would think, okay, like that's not that bad. That's okay. Like in a night? Like in a night, like one yeah. one night, oh. three times, I'd be happy. Uh-huh. Uh, clearly, you would be too. It's not that bad at all. <laughs> but apparently, uh, <laughs> this is funny. This is where we can giggle. Okay. Kellett fell asleep. And well, by the third time, I mean, I get that. Catherine was not done. <gasps> she wanted a fourth round well, and apparently was so pissed that her husband was so sleepy that she started to strangle him. 
in his sleep. Ooh, oh, that's not a good sign. That's not the start of a healthy marriage. Attempted murder on the night of your marriage is not a good sign. Oh, girl, this is why vibrators exist. I mean, accessibility. Go to, go to Babeland, man. Go to Babeland. So it was not an easy marriage. I'll just say that. And Kellett was frequently unfaithful. So mm. clearly she was not very, you know, trusting of him. And this is her first serious relationship. So that's going to damage you. Right. Uh, and she ended up having two kids with him, Melissa in 1976 mm-hmm. and Natasha in 1980. And he actually left his entire family. He left all of them in the middle of the night for an affair one night. And mm. Catherine Knight reacted, let's just say, poorly. She ended up putting their two-month-old infant on the local train tracks shortly before a train was due. Luckily, the train never came. But at the same time, she ended up threatening several people with a stolen axe. So all of this ended up landing her in the psychiatric ward. Well, good. I was going to say, is nobody, I mean, like, these are all signs that somebody is not well. Correct. Like, this is a, this is somebody who needs help. Like, I mean, and there's more. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So while she's in the psychiatric ward, she starts talking to the nurses and she tells them that she intended to kill a mechanic who had fixed Kellett's car because that's what made it possible for him to leave her. Because it's the mechanic's fault, right? I feel like I feel bad for her though. She's obviously not well. No, not like, at all. These are not the words or actions of somebody who is is in the right frame of mind. Like this is this is sad. It is sad. And I'm glad that she went and got help, but yeah. at the same time, I don't think it was enough help. No, it doesn't well, given what ultimately <laughs> happens in all these things. There's, there's more. Mm-hmm. So she actually was diagnosed with postnatal depression. Ah, oh, yeah. Uh, and that was apparently what they told her was the problem with everything. Which The trigger even, for... Yeah, even then I feel like there was a lot more that they just didn't <gasps> diagnose, yeah. um, knowing what we know now. And right after she ended up uh, getting out of the hospital... Witnesses saw her violently pushing her other child in a stroller down a busy street, like violently. Oh, flashing red lights. This is not good. This is bad news. No, I mean, again, but I, I, I I feel like this is somebody who it's not like she was hiding anything or being subtle about the fact that she was a disturbed person. So it's really sad to me that she obviously was not getting the help she needed and that other people are going to suffer because of that. Right. And uh, she was released from the hospital too. So like, it's like they tried, but like what they did wasn't the right approach or they didn't identify the right things or, or what, ha- what have you. Well, Maybe they the didn't have money. Like, I was going to say yeah. like, yeah, they might not have had enough information to help at that time too. Right. So that's something to, to keep in mind. So despite all the threats that Kellett clearly knew were going on with uh, his wife, he took her back once she was released from the hospital, but it didn't last long. And they finally uh, got divorced in 1986 and Kellett was the one to leave her. Yeah, (laughs) obviously. So in the same exact year, in 1986, she meets David Saunders. He was a local miner. 
And she ended up having a daughter with him, another daughter, in 1988. So she constantly thought that he was cheating on her, even though he wasn't. I mean, that's obviously probably from her first marriage. This is really messed up. And when I read this, I was like, no, not okay. Like, I'm more upset about this than, like, her murdering her dude. (laughs) She cut his eight-week-old dingo puppy's throat in front of him Mm. just to show him what she was capable of and Mm. had no remorse whatsoever. Like, that is so, Mm. like, a baby. So awful, right? So, (laughs) she doesn't stop there. In 1990, she attempted to murder him with a pair of scissors. So he leaves her. And he pretends to be a different person, gets a whole new name, and moves to a new town. My God. Fully, like, new identity just to escape her. But he got out. So at least he survived. On to the next, John Chillingworth. John Chillingworth was much older than her. They dated for three years and had a son named Eric. And in this relationship, there weren't any violent incidences like the previous incidences, uh, which is good. But it ended after uh, Chillingworth found out that Knight was cheating on him with another man. And this other man was named John Price. Mm. At this point, it's 1993. Uh-huh. She's 40. She has four children, age 2 to 17. So let's talk John Price. John Price is the unfortunate gentleman who was cooked and eaten. So Oof. let me tell you a little bit about John. Uh-huh. He was 45, and he worked in the mines also. So I guess that's a really big career move for people that live in Aberdeen. Um, okay. And they began a relationship in 1995. He was considered as hard a worker as he was a drinker. I am seeing a pattern here. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about me. Um, <laughs> Last time I checked, you didn't work in mines, but I mean, maybe I'm learning something new about you, Kim. Listen, there's things you don't know about me, Gabby. <laughs> I have layers. Are you an onion? Yeah. Oh, I feel like we should talk about Shrek next. <laughs> but we're not talking about Shrek. We're, not we're talking, talking about, about Catherine Knight and cannibalism. Uh, so they get together in 1995. She immediately moves in with him and his two older children. And she still kept her home, but didn't really live there. So they have all these kids living in this house with them. And Apparently, it was like hunky-dory for a while until Catherine suggests that they get married, and John shuts her down real quick. And when that happens, Catherine is not a happy camper, and she begins to become violent. So they often fought in public, and to get revenge on John... She actually, she had this video camera and she really apparently loved her video camera. This is like 95, so it had to be like a big honking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would record things. And this one time she recorded a first aid kit that she said that Price allegedly stole from the mine that he worked at and then brought the tape to his boss, showed his boss that Price stole this kit. And it caused him to lose his job. Mm. And 
what's even more messed up is apparently she convinced them that the kit was stolen, <gasps> even though someone else said that the kit was just thrown out because it had like expired stuff in it. Oh, um, but she still made him lose his job. Could you imagine like you're wow. dating someone and they manipulate you to the point where they make you lose your job. So he got pissed. He breaks up with her. He kicks her out. Um, and I guess they had this group of friends that they would all hang out with that were all like no filter alcoholics, hang out in bars and just get wasted together type of people. And when he kicked her out, they were supportive of him. His friends mm-hmm. were supportive of him, but then he ends up taking her back. And at that time, his friends are like, what are you doing, dude? Why, why would you do that? That's a terrible idea. And it caused him to lose respect from his friends. So he ended up like stopping going to bars and going out and like staying home more. And he started to feel very ashamed. Mm. And during this time, things are more violent at home. And he starts expressing concern to his friends and his new coworkers. He got a new job at a different mine. Anytime that he and Knight fought, he literally thought that like something awful was going to happen every time they'd get into an argument. And it's no way to live either. Like, Oh, And he literally told his friends, like, yo, if I don't, like, if you don't hear from me tomorrow, call the cops. I'm probably dead. Like, fully told his friends that. Um, And he just knew something was wrong and that something awful was about to happen, but just didn't know how to prevent it. And Uh. in February of 2000, Catherine attempted to stab him in the chest (gasps) with a knife. What? Yeah. And he filed a restraining order against her to keep him and his children safe. Now, in the meantime, Knight calls the police on him, accuses him of being violent toward her. Mm. And at the same time, he's telling the police, no, she's the one being violent toward me. Look at what just happened. Right. And help me get her out of my house. Like, it's his house. They don't even officially, like, her name isn't on the deed or anything. She has a house somewhere else. And the cops tell him that he needs a court order in order to get her out of his house. So then fast forward to the day before he's killed, okay? Mm -hmm. He goes into work with a look of dread. He just inherently knows something's wrong. His coworkers inquire, like, what's going on? And he tells them everything that's happened and tells them that he thinks that she's going to kill him straight up. Oh, jeez. And he even went as far as to tell his neighbor across the street the same day that if they saw his van the next morning when he's supposed to be at work to call the cops because she's done me in. Like, he, like, knows something's going to happen. It's, like, very apparent to him that he's going to die, but, like, nobody's doing anything about anything. And I mm-hmm. think when I hear about this, it makes me so sad because I, it's like you shouldn't know that. That's so crazy to know that you're not safe. And that something bad is going to happen to you. But also, like, maybe he could have left. He could have gone somewhere. Like, there, there are things he could have done, too, that it's just, it wasn't handled. Right, but I, I'm going to I'm gonna respectfully disagree with that. Like, okay. for, for a couple of reasons. One, it, 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 goes, it goes a little too close to victim blaming. That's true. Okay, I take that back. And two, having been in a not identical situation, but a situation... Because there's not a system in place to protect people from this kind of thing. And so it's, it's, do you, do you stop living? Like, as you said, if you go somewhere, okay, for how long? Yeah. For the rest of your life? Do you uproot your life? Do you change your identity? Like, 
it, there is not a system in place to protect people who are, this is abuse. This is domestic abuse. Yep. It's, I mean, very clearly they both have been abusive, but obviously she is more abusive to him than he is to her. Regardless, either way, it's not good. None of it's, it's good. not good. No. Yeah. And so just the point that he told his neighbors to look for his car, like that's just wild. So that was the day before he died. The next day, the day of his death was February 29th, 2000. He goes to court trying to get help. Now he's like, I need to get a court order because I was told I need to get a court order, right? So Mm -hmm. he tells the story of what happened the night before, which is even more messed up. He woke up startled at 2 a.m. to Catherine Knight standing at the foot of his bed with her hands behind her back as though she was hiding something like a knife, like a weapon. So he jumps out of bed, terrified. This is when he's going to die. It's going to happen now, right? He's thinking that. And I guess there's a mirror behind her. So when he gets up, he sees in the mirror that she doesn't have anything behind her back. And she was clearly just like fucking with him in the most so messed, messed up, up way. Like uh. where she was just trying to scare him and get a rise and torture him. Um, and she wouldn't leave his house still. So they he tells this story to the court, tries to get a court order against her. He succeeds. But unfortunately, she still won't leave the house. Like, he gets the court order, but nobody does anything about it. So it just makes me sad that other people that could have helped fell short. We kind of talked about this. But, like, even police, like, if you get a court order, get this person out. Like, why would you let this person linger so long? Especially if you finally have gone to, you know, the length of talking to someone at a court to get a court order. Like but how this is, go home I mean, him? it's, it's, it's a problem we have here in our country too, that like, we don't have a lot of laws in place to protect people. So you get, yeah, you can get a restraining order, you can get a court order, but if somebody is going to kill you, they do not care that there is a court order, but the police tend to sit there and say, we can't do anything until they've tried something. And clearly she's tried something multiple times at this point. Yep. So, you know. And I I was thinking about this when I was researching this, is I just don't know the difference of Australia and the U.S. and how they handle things. Obviously, it's probably not the same. Um, Right. I don't know enough about their laws. Me neither. And I mean, hey, if we have any of our Australian listeners that want to give us some context or information, we're open to listening to it. Mm -hmm. So now we've gotten up to the point, the night of the murder, right? So I'm going to skip the night of the murder. I'm going to go back to it. So we're going to go to the day after. The next morning, John doesn't show up to work. He warned his coworkers, if you don't see me, call the cops. They knew something was up, so they call the cops. Police officer shows up, goes to the house with one of the coworkers to see if they can find him. They break in. Nobody's answering the door. Something is hanging in the hallway, blocking the entryway to the house Mm. like a blanket. And they think it's like someone did laundry and they were hanging a blanket of some sort. And one of them walks into it and gets blood on their arm. It was not a blanket. It was the skin of a human minus the head just Uh -uh. hanging there. Blood is everywhere in the hall, in the kitchen. Uh And there's a pot on the stove in the pot. Mm. was the head of John Price. On the counter, there's two prepared dishes, like Thanksgiving dinners. Looked like dinner, large slabs of meat, some veggies, 
I'll give you a couple guesses at uh, what kind of meat that was. Was it people? It might be people. The meat was people. It was people meat. It was people meat. <laughs> people meat. So the officer and the coworker look around. They obviously see <laughs> there's got to be a there's a dead body somewhere. They have to find it. They go into the rooms and they find Catherine. She's sleeping, snoring even, like they heard her before they entered. She's knocked out on the bed. They try to wake her up. They can't. She's clearly taken some kind of concoction of pills to knock her out. So they rush her to the hospital. And she actually is unconscious in the hospital for days afterwards. So enter detectives, right? So we have Bob Wells. He was the main detective on the case. And Peter Musio, Musio. He was the forensic investigator. They begin to investigate the crime scene. They see the human pelt hanging in the hallway, blood splatters and stains on light switches, and you can even see blood splatters on the wall that looks like someone coughed blood onto the wall. The victim was attacked in bed, and you can see he tried to escape. He ran to escape, so there's blood splattered all over the walls in the foyer. The entirety of the entryway and the entry hallway are covered in blood. Mm. There were enough blood stains to determine where the body was laid and where it was skinned and where the body was placed afterwards um, and where the head was actually decapitated in the hallway because of the amount of blood in, in certain areas. Mm-hmm. And that now the skinned body is hanging from a meat hook in the hallway too. Jeez. There were blood drippings, presumably from the head, from the hallway, leading into the kitchen, ending at the stove. Mm. Then there was the head in the pot that we talked about. Right. Looking at the dining table, there's the two plates of prepared food, ready to be consumed, comprised of meat, and more specifically, potato, pumpkin, beets, zucchini, cabbage, squash, and gravy. All the fixins. Mm. So when the detectives find the body... They noticed that the muscle had been cut off the gluteus maximus, dead ass. His butt. (laughs) The tush, his little tushy. His bum. Yep. And the thigh of muscle into five steaks and cooked them in the oven. So there's Mm. two steaks on each plate, Mm. and one steak was left out for the dog. Jeez. Detectives felt that the meals were presented as her trophy. They even had names labeled next to the dishes of John's children who lived in the house. So she fully prepared him for his kids to eat. It's also noted that uh, Knight made a dish for herself. And the half-discarded contents were later found at the crime scene suggest that she didn't finish her meal. So she fully ate him. Ugh, jeez. Like, legit, it's not even like you kill a a person and cut them up and cook them and then don't eat it or or try to serve it to others. No, she fully consumed him. So Bob Wells finally gets a chance to interview Catherine Knight five days after the murder once she comes to, but doesn't find much success. So I wanted to play you a clip, an audio clip from that. Um, this is actually from a TV show from Australia called Crimes That Shook Australia. It's from episode four. I don't remember anything. Do you recall yourself going to bed? Finally. 
So Catherine apparently claims, as you heard, to not remember anything right. at all, would not give away anything, but somehow accepts that she killed John Price eventually, but she refuses to explain why. So she gives like no clarity to the family. She apparently blamed him saying that he had been violent toward her. So it's his fault during this interrogation and questioning more details were revealed from the night before Catherine took out other people for a meal and she actually set up her loved video camera at her daughter's house due to some sort of self-entitlement of her own property. I think she liked to show off what she owned and I don't know if she wanted to film something specifically at her daughter's house, but she set it up there. Price then came home from work and followed his usual routine of checking in with the neighbors before going to bed at 11 p.m. Knight then comes home shortly after he gets home, makes herself dinner, watches Star Trek, showers, wakes up Price, has sex with him. I mean, she really liked it, so I get it. He then goes to pee, gets back in bed, and there she is waiting for him with her butcher knives, stabbing him 37 times with those butcher knives that she just conveniently kept by the bed. Jeez. So she then cleans up, changes, and leaves the house at least once. She actually takes her car back to her house and parks her car there. I don't know why she would do that. I think the detectives thought that she did that so that they wouldn't think that she did it, but she stayed there. So I don't, I don't huh. know why that even would make a difference. Um, and then at 12.15 a.m., a large sum of money was taken out of Price's bank account from an ATM. And I, I guess they didn't know where the money went. So Knight presents an alibi that makes her the victim due to domestic violence, like I mentioned. Right. Yeah. And obviously we talked about her abusive relationships in the past, mm -hmm. uh, but she was also the abuser too. Like it went both ways. And we talked about that earlier, but when Wells investigated her house, he came to learn <laughs> that Catherine had an obsession with violent movies, death and taxidermy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this yeah, is that automatically those, makes like, a killer. I, I'm like, don't come in my house. Don't look around <laughs> because then you're going to think weird things. Um, that's, but anyway, that's lazy. That's such lazy work to be like, this must be why it is lazy. Um, I think it was just something that they noted and it wasn't like a, like a strong reference. Right. So fast forward to the trial. This is October in 2001. Supreme court judge Barry O'Keefe was very passionate about this trial. He made a point to make sure that his jury would not be too squeamish to determine the outcome of Knight's charge. So oh. prior to the trial, he had to literally weed out anyone who couldn't handle graphic images or descriptions of the crime scenes or human remains because he didn't want the fundamental right to a fair jury affected by a fainting spell or emotional trauma. <laughs> I mean, that's smart. Like, yeah. you don't want any reason that, that uh, the validity of the trial could be called into question. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so he needed to get some real soulless people on that jury. So 
Initially, Catherine pleads not guilty, despite admitting guilt in the police interview. But very quickly changes the plea to guilty in the middle of the trial without giving any reason why. So Keith, well, I mean, we're also you're 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 prescribing like rational actions to a woman who is has um some problems. True. And so it's interesting you bring that up because O'Keefe said that he was actually hesitant to take her plea and sentence yeah. and sentence her immediately because of this. He thought that uh, she would claim insanity at the time of making the plea so that yeah. he he then like was like, pause, I'm grabbing a psychiatrist. So he right. gets a psychiatrist to examine her and uh, comes to the conclusion that she is, in fact, not insane. I mean, because there is a difference between being found competent to to stand trial and being like uh, pleading insanity is real hard to do. Yeah. You can be somebody who has, I mean, it's why so many serial killers can't get away with that. Like not having empathy or, or not, uh, they might not be fully stable, but it doesn't mean they don't know the difference between something you should or shouldn't do. Which is, is like basic difference. stuff. Yeah. 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 And so she actually got diagnosed by three psychiatrists. They had three people look at her. Um, which, Does she have a diagnosis? So they diagnosed her with a personality disorder. Yeah, that's what I would have guessed. Yeah. And it's not technically a psychiatric illness. For those of you who don't know, I'm just going to give a little bit of information on that. It's a disorder uh, of the way that you relate to other people. Personality disorder is a way of thinking, feeling, and behaving that deviates from the expectations of the culture, causes distress and problems functioning, and lasts over time. So it's something that is not quite as drastic as pleading insanity, but it still shows that something's a little bit off. Well, because it's it's not uncommon to see a lot of serial killers being diagnosed with like an antisocial personality disorder sure. or I mean, it's it's that that kind of goes hand in hand. So, yeah, sure. that doesn't shock me. And also during the trial, like people were looking at her and seeing how she was reacting to stuff. And she wasn't. She was entirely impassive, had no emotion, wouldn't look at anyone um, and wouldn't look at the evidence either. Just was just staring. Mm -hmm. And she seemed fully removed, really remote. And I guess a lot of people described her as just so plain. She's just this little redhead, not big woman with like metal glasses and just looked kind of harmless and seemed, it just seemed weird that she had no reactions to anything, but she actually had an outburst at one point and she started rocking back and forth and started screaming. I get it. I feel like that's more understandable than not reacting. Um, And she ended up calming down and resumed the emotionless response uh, and no remorse. And eventually she was sentenced to life in prison without parole and was the first woman in history in Australia to be sentenced to this. So she failed in an appeal of her sentence and will never live outside of a jail. And the mystery of where Price's money went from the ATM is fully Mm -hmm. up for debate. They could never find it. The Supreme Court Justice O'Keefe admitted, I think you'll like this, that he didn't eat meat for months after the trial Mm. because all he could think about when he thought of meat was the butchered body of John Price. Ah, 
And yeah. those plates, those Thanksgiving plates. Also, policemen working the case were very affected. They underwent yeah. counseling for 18 months after mm-hmm. the investigation due to being so traumatized, and one of them never went back to work. Mm. So to this day, Catherine Knight maintains her innocence and refuses to accept responsibility for her crime. Mm. She appealed her sentence before and was denied like immediately. And she Mm. is still serving her life sentence at Silverwater Women's Correctional Center. Wow. And that is the story of Catherine Knight, the Australian cannibal. But I do have to tell you. There was uh, this book in my research for this. So first of all, I, I listened to an audiobook that was helpful, gave a lot of information. But I found one that I thought had a really fun title. It was called Man Eater. Oh, good Lord. Uh, and it had, a, I think, like the artistry of the cover looked cool. So I was like, oh, this looks like a cool book. Yeah, no, it's definitely fictional um just <laughs> this is the one you told me about yeah i, I was yeah. uh cracking up because the intro i mean i think they want it to be non-fiction it's based on a non-fictional story but the way that it's told is very it's dramatized it's fully dramatized the whole yeah. like introduction is just like a like a very dramatic sexual experience that she has with john price and it, it Which talks means about Fiction. Yeah, very sexy time um, told from her perspective. And I'm like, how do you know this, sir, who wrote this book? Um, so I, I'm, I did not use that as a source. I'll just tell you that I started to read it and was like, yeah, I'm not going to read this now. I'm not going to waste my time on it. Um, so I do not recommend that as a book to read about this as a, you know, reliable source. Um, but I we will list the sources of all of the things I, I used to research this. There were a couple of um, shows that I watched. There, there's a podcast I listened to, and uh, a couple books as well, and articles. So I got it from like a wide variety of uh, places. So just to give you some perspective, but I just think it's so fascinating that this happened 20 years ago. It's yeah. so recent. I mean, all the kids involved, I feel bad for. Yeah. I feel, and honestly, like, I feel bad for Catherine Knight's childhood. Like, oh, yeah. That's yeah. No, so definitely. awful that she had to go through all that. And it obviously, like, never had it easy, you know? One, and you look at someone like her and what she would go on to do and wonder how much the childhood influenced what she would later do. Um, If there had been somebody intervening on her behalf when she was a kid, Mm -hmm. would she have turned into the person she turned into? I always find that very sad. It is super sad. And I don't know. I feel like when I hear stuff like this, I expect more from communities and, you know. Based on how well they're doing now. (laughs) I guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess everyone's got a bit uh, of a not so perfect situation, but I just want to have faith in in communities to help people within them and prevent stuff like this from happening in the future. Fingies crossed. Fingies crossed. <laughs> um, and that's Catherine Knight. Yowza. Yowza, for sure. <laughs> and that brings us to. 
Creepy Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Kim. Yeah. What you watching? I'm going to make two recommendations today. Uh, the first recommendation is one that actually, um, because of this case, it, it reminded me a, a little bit of it. Um, it's a documentary okay, called uh, Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, essentially, it, it starts off dealing with the murder of Andrew Bagby who was murdered by the woman he was seeing. Mm. And when she was ultimately apprehended, it was found out that she was pregnant. Oh. So Andrew's parents um, sue for custody of the child. And the, the gentleman that made the documentary, I'm going to say his name wrong, Kurt Queen? Cohen, I'm sure he says his full name somewhere in there, and I'm not remembering how to pronounce his last name. I apologize. Um, he had been friends with Andrew Bagby growing up, and he initially made this film or started making it so that Zachary, the the child that's born, could know his father. Oh. I'm not going to say any more. If you're not familiar with the case, don't look anything up about it. Watch the documentary. I will say it will rip your heart out. How did it you is- watch it? Dear Zachary is currently available to watch on Amazon Prime uh, as well as to rent or buy on anywhere else you would watch and or see movies. Um, again, it is absolutely gut-wrenching. Uh, this is a movie that, that it's a documentary that watching it, um, it just, it, it's heartbreaking, but it's very well done. And there's elements of the case that I mean, nothing quite as dramatic as the cannibalism and the butchering, sure. but the but the the woman murdering her lover and you her dealing with the grandparents who want the child like it's just it's it's very interesting. It sounds like it. Uh, the the other thing I'm going to recommend is something I watched recently on Shutter. It was a short series called Dead Wax. Oh, that's a good name. It's a good name. It is uh, an eight-episode series. Each episode is 15 to 20 minutes long for the most part. So it it's a pretty fast watch. I watched it in the evening. Cool. But it's uh, basically about a, a woman who finds records. And she has a client who tells her about this, this group of, of rare records. And apparently one specific one that anyone who listens to it then immediately dies. Oh, that's spooky. It is. It's, and it's done kind of noir style. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting. Ted Raimi shows up and I'm a big Ted Raimi fan and it's, you know, it's obviously kind of low budget, um, but it's really interesting. Nicely done. The acting is is pretty solid and it's, it's worth a watch. It's a pretty low commitment watch and it's, it's worth a watch for something kind of different and unique. So you can see that streaming on shutter. Nice. I'll have to watch yeah. it. That sounds good. What have you been watching? I have been watching Outlander. And only Outlander because it's so good. <laughs> um, I actually surprised myself at how bad I binge things because I watched all of season four between a Wednesday and a Saturday uh, oh, while 
doing other work. <laughs> um, so I, honestly, I haven't had a ton of time other than the time that I've dedicated to that. So I've only really watched that. But I will tell you, I'm on season four right now because Netflix just released season four. And season five and six are on Amazon Prime. So everything up to season four is on Netflix if you want to watch it. Um, but season four is really interesting because it takes place in the new world in America. Um, and it shows the interaction between Native Americans and, you know, white settlers. And there's this one like super gut wrenching scene uh, where the music that they chose to use was so perfect. And it, I don't want to give anything away, so I'm not going to say what happened, but it's in episode 12, I think, toward the end. So if you watch it, it's just very sad. I think what's interesting about this show is that, you know, I think it's hard to watch things that have violence and rape and, um, you know, not great things done to people uh, in general, like torture. Uh, that have actually happened in our history and in, in the history in general. Um, it's hard to watch that kind of stuff. And I think what's nice about Outlander is the way that they do it and the psychology that they put into it is thoughtful um, and not necessarily just like brutal. So uh, I, I personally really liked it and I love a historical moment. So <laughs> I've really been digging this uh, series. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks so much for listening, everyone. Uh Um, Really excited to share what we have coming up, too. Uh, Kim and I have some fun episodes (laughs) that are a little bit different that we haven't really done before (laughs) coming up. So excited about that. Also, Kim and I went to a cemetery last week together Uh and got locked inside. And that was fun. (laughs) It's a dream come true. Uh, You know, just hanging out with all all the dead people. Um, But... No, we we found our way out. Obviously, we're recording. Um, but <laughs> yeah, we're trying to do more adventures too for you guys, so that we can take pictures of it and you know post it to our social more frequently of adventures in the Pacific Northwest. So stay tuned for that. Um, we have our social media. It's Instagram. It's Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast, and we also have. Uh, basically anywhere you look up ghoulish tendencies podcast, you will find our social media. Our website is ghoulishtendencies.com. All of it is on there. All of our episodes are on there. All of our show notes are on there. If you're ever curious as to where we got our information from and a big thank you to ghost daddy, Jake rice for helping (laughs) us out with the website. Also feel free to check out ghostly activities. It's our, our our neighbor ghost daddy's podcast. Um, and we're actually going to be on an episode coming up. So stay Mm -hmm. tuned for that. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please find us on our social media and If you like what you hear, please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and a review. We really appreciate it. It helps other people find us, and it truly brightens our days. So thank you for listening, and stay.